This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything we've been up to this morning, November the 30th, Wednesday. That includes having a chat to Alicia Moopin, the Deputy Managing Director of Asta DM Healthcare, about her new wellness push. Uh, speaking to Faisal Durrani, Partner and Head of Middle East Research at Knight Frank, about their new projection that next year Dubai will see the greatest price appreciation of any top-end real estate market in the world. We've also been speaking to veteran market watcher Mohammed Ali Yassin, Capital Markets Advisor and Specialist, about the surprise fall in Talim shares on the first day of trading. And we've been looking at a new ranking which puts Dubai as number two, number two, I tell you, in terms of expat cities. We will start with a poll that has been set up uh, this is to do with Dubai uh, ranking in the expat uh, expat city. Who's done this piece of research? It's a company I'd never heard of before. Um, in fact, I'm going to have to check the report to find out who they are. Internations. Hmm. Internations with um, no space between inter and nations. Expat city ranking list. I had a look on their website, actually. It's basically it's like a networking website for expats. In very simple terms. Anyway, that's who it is. Uh, they've done the research. Valencia's top, and Dubai is second. Valencia. Valencia. Yeah, we're not going that route this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's paella, all right? <laughs> and, and, and what about the city where Lidl Messi used to play? It's Barcelona. Thank you very much indeed. Right, Valencia then topped the list. Uh, Dubai was second. One of your favourite places, Brandy Scott, was third, Mexico City. You're a big fan, aren't you? I am, and I'm looking at the Mejor. whys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for the district federal capital. I'm not going to try and say the whole thing. Um, so the, the whys are as interesting as the list. Number two. Are we happy it was number two? I think so. Um, and then Abu Dhabi is in the top ten as well. Um, Mexico is seen to be friendly and affordable. I can attest that it's both of those things, but unsafe. Mexico City. Yeah, it's uh, the place where you're sitting there using your, your laptop and there are sort of rules around where you sit, how you use it. And, and all the rest of it. Why? I was Well, I was just kind of conscious that if I was walking around with a nice, shiny Apple Mac, um, depending on where you were, you'd probably on, be on the second floor of a coffee shop using it rather than sitting happily by the window advertising the fact that you were typing on several thousand dirhams worth of kit. Oh, is that right? People yeah. spot you? Yeah, yeah. But you just, you just kind of become aware. Does that make any sense? Mm. Um, I love... I absolutely love Mexico City. Absolutely adore it. Um, so friendly and affordable but unsafe. Dubai is seen as being good for for work and leisure. Safety concerns came up again for Thailand. Um, so a lot of these places that did well, did well despite almost. So Portugal um, wasn't seen as being the best on the work options for expats. Um, but the quality of life um, has boosted it up there. So there's a lot of yes but in in this um, as well. Uh, if we look at who came down the bottom, um, Paris was seen as being, you know, brilliant for all the things that Paris is is great for, you know, the food, the the culture, the Parisness. I could go on. <laughs> um, but expensive. 
Yeah. But uh, would, would, could you not say the same about Valencia? Spain's not cheap these days. Uh, one of the things, actually, that pushed Valencia up was its affordability. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I just I, I don't understand these rankings. I don't get it. Um, I'm looking at the rankings. I'm looking at the, uh, how they've, how they've um, um, worked this one out. Spain comes out on top because it's, it's, it's exceeded expectations about quality of life. Great, OK. Um, don't, I'm not going to deny with that. You know, Mediterranean lifestyle, Mediterranean diet. Um, uh, down there in, in southern Spain as well. Public transport? Spain not renowned for public transport. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and I know that that's... Uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm taking a sort of... Maybe I haven't been there... Obviously, I haven't been there recently, so I haven't been able to try the, the, the new public transport system, but they've got a rather checkered past when it comes to public transport and transport systems. Um, sporting opportunities? Yeah, but then where doesn't have sporting opportunities around the world? Right, you're, you're not having this one at all, are you? I just think it's a weird one. I don't, I, 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 and this is taking nothing. I love Spain. I visit Spain a lot. I just wouldn't have it on top of the list for, for expats. And, and, I and is it an expat city? It's I, the I middle of Europe. I don't think Valencia is an expat city. It's a domestic Spanish city. Madrid's an expat city. Barcelona is an expat city. They're big international cities. I'm not even sure Valencia should be on the list. I've only been once. It's a perfectly nice place. But the, the, the no, I said no one. It's not like Media City here, where you've got regional headquarters of big multinational companies who are True, bringing in people yeah. from around the world. Uh, you have that in Madrid. You have it in Barcelona. You don't have it in Valencia. But it is a it is a regional provincial city rather than somewhere where expats go. But maybe that's one of the appeals. Maybe that's what adds to this quality of life of which they speak. The fact that it's not an expat city yeah. is what makes it a great expat city. Yes. There's no expats. Well, no, but just that it's not a million miles an hour, hustle bustle, we're here to work. Do you know what I mean? Maybe I, that's part of it. I do. Um, we would love to hear from all those that have resided in Valencia um, at any point during their careers or lives. Anyone got a house there? Uh, anyone lived there? Um, we would like to know what Valencia's got, what we haven't, um, so that we can improve. <laughs> yeah, what's, this, what's, this is war. This is, yeah, <laughs> the, gloves, the gloves are off, all right? Uh, we will take the matadorial stance now uh, and find out how we can do better. Uh, that's what's going on with regards to... Uh, so we've got a poll going on that one, haven't we? Actually, let's get rid of that poll. Why is Valencia better <laughs> than Dubai? We want to know. Uh, what's the poll question today? It is uh, Dubai placed second in a new ranking of expat cities. What's your experience here in Dubai as an expat? Uh, a, it feels like home, or B, just a place to work? Uh, that's what's going on um, here. Well, that's one of the rankings that's happening at the moment. The Insta poll is out there at the moment. Uh, Brandy, you're talking all things house prices at the moment because, <laughs> yeah. What Valencia might not have is a booming real estate market at the moment, eh? Yeah, we are talking a posh property. We're talking the top of the market, um, high-end real estate with the guys from Knight Frank. Uh, they have predicted that next year we'll see um, Dubai taking number one on the list. We've got a number of lists this morning uh, when it comes to the biggest price appreciation uh, for houses and the like at the top end of the market. Um, some quite amazing stats in this report, one being that prime property in Dubai rose price-wise 50% this year, and the other being just how little of it there is. Over the next three years, for example, the amount of 
Prime, prime, proper, proper prime villas that are set to be handed over by, I think it's 2025, is in single digits, low single digits. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, supply and demand coverage should just buy, build more of these things. <laughs> exactly. There's plenty of land, isn't there? Yeah. Bit of concrete, knock it up. Put a pool out the back. How, how hard could it be? How hard could it be? Uh, so it's supply and demand is one of the things that is uh, is pushing um, those properties up. We'll have a look also at what the rises at that end of the market um, mean for the rest of the market. Uh, so that's with the guys from Knight Frank. Speaking of lists um, and numbers, there's another one out as well from a company that I had not heard of, but I shall be speaking to them this morning called Infobit. Uh, they do things with cloud computing and platforms, but I was interested because they've been looking at how much we use WhatsApp to communicate with companies. I use WhatsApp to talk to my, uh, gosh, I think the hairdressers on here. I think the acupuncture people are on here. There's a couple of others. It's up something like 80% in the first half of this year, commercial WhatsApp chats. Um, and I'm going to ask them if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Do you want to speak to your bank, your doctor, your hairdresser and the rest of it on WhatsApp, or do you not? Do we? Well, I, it's the WhatsApp group that that is the bane of a oh, lot yeah. of people's life, isn't it, rather than the one-on-one um, this Brandy is and customer, her bank manager. Yeah, yeah no, but this is customer service right. channels. This is almost replacing the call centre. Uh, it's fine. And it's not always a person. It's oh, very often a bot. It's rubbish. Rich, is it? Yeah, it's okay. You're. Uh... It's rubbish. Don't you, I don't use it. When I see it pop up, I was like, no, I'm not doing that uh, because I just know that I'm going to get really frustrated with it. So I, I check out straight away. Um, I hate the, the WhatsApp. Um, yeah, I'm here to. And the, it's always the, 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 the robot on the other end has always got a sort of weird human name. I'm like. I'm Bob. Bob, yeah. Uh, hey, Bob here. Can I help? It's not you're not Bob, are you? You know, because there's no way that's not customer service. Well, as soon as you log on, Bob's there asking you if you're all right. Nah. Yeah. Press one for English, two for Arabic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, ninety-seven. If you'd like to hear this menu again, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming around to the idea because I'm thinking like you. It's it's service providers who I'm on WhatsApp with professionally. For example, the the guys of the coaching at my kids' football club. WhatsApp every couple of weeks. Uh, you know, trainings move forward half an hour. Oh, there's a game on Sunday. That's useful. Yeah, that's every now and again. This is when you go on to their website and immediately you've it's got a WhatsApp from them saying, can I help you? It's like, that's weird. It's both. More on the fact that Dubai has ranked second. I know. Second, eh? Um, in the expat city ranking. Uh, we have got polls running on this one. We'll give you the latest on those polls as well. Dive a little deeper into these findings. Um, it's uh, a, list, a list of cities for expats by the networking website Internations. Uh, and we've reached out to Ed Bell, Senior Director, Market Economics, Emirates MBD, to give us a macroeconomic national building perspective. How seriously do you take rankings like this, Ed, as Dubai competes with uh, other cities here in the region to attract investors and, of course, talent? 
Quality of life rankings are important for cities like Dubai as they try and attract international talent to allow for more sustainable long-term growth. But having put indexes like this together in the past, I know that there's often quite a lot of subjectivity in their methodology, and they're often assessed from outside the city rather than the people necessarily living there. Even if the respondents provide some of the raw data, the overall methodologies can be constructed and assessed outside of it. Now, Dubai and Abu Dhabi often rank very highly as one measure in these kind of indexes is always personal finances, and having a no-income tax regime is going to mean that the ability to save and accrue income is often going to be greater here than in other some of the higher quality of life cities. But I don't think it takes much to look around and see that Dubai is attracting more and more residents thanks to a well-performing economy and I think quite crucially changes that have been made in the visa regime in the last couple of years that makes it a more flexible option for expats or companies to come and set up in the country. And I think that really is quite crucial and these kind of things will be included in these surveys as well that the initial kind of plunge into a new city somewhere like Dubai, like Singapore, like London, wherever it might be, if that is easy and amenable, that's going to allow and make a city like Dubai much more attractive for visitors to want to stay for the long term. Lord Bell giving us his thoughts there uh, on the latest findings. You've got a poll on this one. Yeah, we wanted to find out your thoughts on Dubai. It's second in the rankings, which is a, which is a good ranking. Um, we asked you very simply, does it feel like home, Dubai? as an expatriate, or just a place to work. We've got polls on Twitter and Instagram, and the findings are pretty much identical. On Twitter, for example, 89% of people say it feels like home. Just 11% say it's just a place to work. And that kind of surprised me, actually. I thought more people would see it simply as a place to work. This is, this is where I do my employment. But 9 out of 10 expatriates saying it feels like home. It's not a scientific poll. Uh, I get it, but it was interesting to me. There is definitely a shift in the sands there. Um, and I know that we come at it from a bit of a boring old long-in-the-tooth perspective, but certainly when we first arrived on these shores over two decades ago, it was it was seen as a short-term placing, as it were, for a number of expatriates, this is. And there was... you know, And, and people sort of accepted that because there wasn't an option to stay longer, really. It was... You come, you see out your contract. Hopefully, that contract gets uh, renewed, and you stick around for a little longer if you want. But um, but that certainly has fundamentally changed, I think. And yeah, it is a lot to do with the visas. It's a lot to do with the opening up of the acceptance and the readiness uh, of the country to encourage people to stay longer. And, and it was, that was exactly the point that Alicia Mupin made, deputy managing director of Asta DM Healthcare, very big provider of mm. hospitals and clinics or here in the UAE. And she said that people are staying longer and they're retiring here now. And they see that in the profile of people walking into their clinics, walking into their hospitals. They're, they're older, whereas before it was, you know, it was a young man's and a young woman's game maybe living in Dubai. But that is gradually changing. Yeah, she exact, made exactly the same point as you, Tom. The visas, the 10-year golden visas are a game changer. I'd say visas and then I'd also say the ability to buy property and these things kind of feed into each other as well. Um, Funny enough, and I was thinking um, yesterday about sort of the knock-on effects of some of the the policy decisions. Um, Even if it's things like, uh, you know, we've talked about the company's law for, for ages, all of it is not just investment related, but also stickability. 
if you like. And the knock-on effects for other industries are huge. I can remember doing an interview, God, years ago, when um, to do with the increasing number of people owning their own homes and the effect that it had on plant sales. Plant sales? Well, you're more likely to plant plants in your own backyard, aren't you? Nice. Yeah. So, like, putting down roots? Literally putting down oh, roots. I see what you did there. Very good. Uh, the one, but one thing that, that we haven't cracked yet, and I don't know how we do, because... I'm not sure which country in the world has, is the medical insurance thing. As you get older, the premiums rise, you're earning less. It's very difficult. Unless you're really quite well off, it's very hard to make the numbers stack up. And I know that, as I've mentioned before, my, my wife's parents, who've been here since the 70s, moved back to India a couple of years ago, and probably the deciding factor was medical insurance. Yeah, and it is, and it becomes more of a cost as you get older as well, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, it, it sort of feeds into another of our talk, talkers today about IPOs. Um, we're reporting, of course, that um, uh, the, having a complete blank, which, which IPO has not gone well? Talim. Talim, was yesterday's uh, cap yesterday. off the rank. Um, and we've, we're getting a lot of reaction to that one today. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the other thing that has factor that is encouraging more people to stay here is that confidence that you can keep your money here. Uh, the reason I say that is a lot of people used to come, earn money here, certainly expats, send it home. I know a lot of people still send money home for family and for, for other reasons. But from an investment point of view, there's a lot more trust in the system now here because of new regulations, transparency, rules... And these IPOs sort of feed into that as well, that um, it is a very feasible place to keep elements of your wealth, if not all. Yeah. There's a, there's a phenomenon in investing called home country bias, and everyone has it. If you're from India, you will tend to invest in real estate in India and stocks in India. Traditionally, investment experts said, that expats living in the UAE didn't have home country bias towards the UAE. They had home country bias to wherever they're from, Nigeria, for example. But now, and Brandy Scott, you're part of this, buying shares of Diwa and so on, there's a bit of home country bias investing for, for assets here, whether it's a real estate or whether it is stocks and shares. Yeah, and it's a comfort psychological thing as well, isn't it, in terms of thinking you know a market. Um, or understand a market, just as well as the logistics of, okay, well, I don't want to pay rent, I'd rather be paying myself through a mortgage, whatever it is. If you're here for long enough, I now know the market here better than I do at home. That's another thing, isn't it? Loads of uh, messages coming through on this one. Uh, the IPO story getting a lot of chat this morning. Ravi's been in touch uh, saying, yeah, weird, this same strange phenomena regarding IPO happened in India a good 40 years ago. People borrowed money to buy big only to give their brokers uh, to sell quickly on day one. Win some, lose some, says Ravi. Kyron asked the question, is it possible to short an IPO? Not really, because you have to borrow a stock to, to short it. And that's not impossible, but very difficult in an IPO. Who would you borrow it from? Uh, hope that answers your question there. Uh, and this one again from another of our listeners saying, coming back to the IPO issue, uh, is it an issue that thanks, uh, the, the fact that the banks here are giving dangerously high leverage? This is leading to massive selling on day one as well. Concerns there or not? Yeah, and Brandy mentioned this point as well. You think leverage is a big part of it, don't you? Leverage has always been part of some of the, the public offerings here, though, I think. 
This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's get a bit more insight on one of the big stories over the past 24 hours here in the UAE. The stock market debut of Talim, the school's operator. Shares falling 15.15% on their market debut yesterday. Joining us on the line now is the Capital Markets Advisor, Mohammed Ali Yassin, joining us from Abu Dhabi. Good morning, Mohammed. Good morning, Richard. Um, so what was the story with Talim yesterday? It's a conundrum. I really don't understand how, um, how, how would something, you know, how would you trade something like about 30 million shares on the first day on the IPO when it was sold at three dirhams and, it's, um, and you drop it to like 10, 15% in the first day. There was no pressures on the market. Market were trading in good, in good uh, levels. Uh, the, share, the 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 uh, the prospectus was very clear. This is a growth kind of story that comes with time. This money that was raised is going to be used to buy more uh, and expand current uh, assets, and therefore, uh, this is a kind of a long-term story. Nothing has come up to change any of those those things. So why would somebody who paid three dirhams willingly, not forced, <laughs> he was willingly willing to pay three dirhams and go on his IPO? would go and sell 30, you know, uh, those investors would go and sell 30 million shares on the first day without any any reason for that. Even if we talk about the flippers, who usually are a good percentage of any IPO, those flippers should not be in this amount of, of shares on the first day. So I, I really don't understand why would somebody uh, do or, or uh, what they did yesterday of sell the share at below the price where they subscribe for. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one who was scratching my head yesterday looking at no, this no. one, thinking, how can this happen? Because it was a book-building process, wasn't it, just last week? There was, was it 18 times oversubscribed, strong demand yep. at three dirhams a share? This just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, and I don't think it is the people, you know, the book-building is usually the qualified investors, and those qualified investors, you hope that many of them are, um, you know, long-term investors and people who understand the value. Nobody comes in and you know, and, and does in, a, in an IPO just for the first day, you know, to dump it. Uh, and if they did, it's usually the retail investors and it's a smaller amount than that. I honestly think there are people there who just come maybe to, to these kind of IPOs thinking I'm going to just go and they borrow lots of money from the bank and banks will lend them against that. But it's not expensive, but they will lend them and they will take their hit whether it wins or, or, uh, or loses. And, uh, but still, that to me is still, it's a company that is growing at 71%. It's a company that, uh, that will distribute dividend. Yes, the dividend yield will be weaker than the ones that we've seen and looking at the numbers that they have so far. However, there's nothing. The, the question and the dilemma to me, Richard, is we did not, you were not forced to subscribe into this. So when you subscribed, why, why did you subscribe if you're worried about selling it on the first day or something that happened? Nothing changed in the market conditions to justify us dumping it at below par, below the price it sold. Finally, Mohammed, you touched on the fundamentals earlier on. The share price will rise and fall. That's what they do. You're a listed company. That's the market for you. What yeah. about the fundamentals of Talim? You've read the prospectus. You've looked at their financials for the past couple of years. What kind of company do you see? Well, Talim is a, is a defensive sector. It's education, it's schools, it's core. So everybody was calling to, to own something in a defensive sector. So education is good. It will benefit from the uh, all the steps that we see in terms of economic prosperity, of growth of population, uh, of now with the bigger bigger uh, liquidity pool and with bigger kind of 
ability to attract more students. This is a growth story, but it's a growth story that will take, you know, you can at least give it two to three years, not to give it, judge it on the first day. And we've heard the on your show, the CEO come and talk about it. And, you know, they were very clear in their message. So I, today there was not, nobody can come and say we did not know or we went into this thinking something. It was very clear. There was no commitments that there. And honestly, on the first day of listing, you cannot judge that management of that company to take that decision. So I still, I still believe it's a good story. Uh, maybe on terms of pricing it, in terms of the range was on a high, high range. But then if that's what you think, you should not come into this IPO. And at some point in the market, if it continues to trade within this range, it'll come to a price which is attractive to some investors to come back in and, uh, and, and build a position. That's the way I see it. It's just I'm, I'm not happy about some of those new investors or people who participate in the IPO because what is important for us on the bigger picture, Richard, is that the, the momentum on IPOs continue. We're going to see now Americana come after uh, National Day holiday listing. And I worry if this is the kind of attitude, you may see some kind of uh, similar kind of direction on that IPO. And then if, if investors start to see IPOs going down when they list, now they're up, then their appetite to participate in the following one could wane. And that's not something we look forward to. Mohammed Ali Yassin is a capital markets advisor. Thanks very much indeed for your time, Mohammed. Appreciate your insights. Big thanks to Mohammed there. It makes a really interesting point as well because there's uh, a lot of interest here being generated by the IPOs, not just because of the uh, the brands, not just because the organisations that um, are, are going to IPO, but also because of the reputational damage that's been done in the past internationally with a couple of companies listing. Uh, there was a lot of survivals there saying, right, we can, pu- we can pull this one back here now, can't we, uh, after some of the damage that was done in the past. Um, You're talking about NMC in London, yeah, right? and uh, and others that have gone to, to to market in in London and 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 sort of spooked investors there. So there was a big sort of play here. People saying, okay, if we could do this properly, then it might bring a little bit uh, a solidity back to the market. The last thing you need is is sort of to see plunges in prices like we did yesterday. Yeah, um, but it is it's a head scratcher. Why would you pay three dirhams for it last week? And sell it yesterday for two and a half. Woo. If you'd leveraged yourself to buy it and you had to pay the money back, might be one reason. Might be one reason, yeah. Or you- spooked, might be another reason. Well, let us know. If you're an investor in Saleem, we'd love to hear from you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are this morning talking about the Dubai prime real estate sector. It's set to see the highest growth appreciation of anywhere in the world, according to a new forecast from the guys at Knight Frank. Very pleased to be joined by the head of Middle East Research, uh, Faisal Durrani, speaking to me on the line this morning. Faisal, good morning. It's lovely to speak to you. Good morning, Brandy. Thanks for having me on the show. Before we chat about your forecast, let's look at 2022 first, because quite an amazing number there. Prices for high-end real estate rising more than 50%. What's driven that? Uh, well, Brandy, we're we're sort of now starting to come out the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're still hugely benefiting from the UAE's world-leading response um, to the uh, to to the pandemic. Um, and it isn't just a, a case of uh, a feel-good factor and, and seeing increased market confidence. If we look at the various key performance indicators for the economy, we actually see um, that the numbers have been extremely positive. I mean, if we look at the uh, Purchasing Managers Index uh, for the UAE, it's been in positive and expansionary territory now for two years. 
Um, so businesses feel good about life. They're recruiting, they're growing, and, and we're seeing you know, a separate impact in the office market due to rising demand. On top of all of that, um, we've got the fact that in general, residential prices in Dubai still remain about 21, 22% below their 2014 peak. Um, so albeit uh, we have seen pretty extraordinary growth, it has come from a pretty low base and it still remains pretty affordable relative to other global cities. Okay, I get the things are going well here, but 50% for prime property. Yes, that's right. So prime uh, property we define as the neighbourhoods of the Palm Jumeirah, Emirates Hills and Jumeirah Bay Island. Um, The average transacted price uh, in these three areas stands at about 3,200 dirhams a square foot, which is uh, whatever that is, 800 or $850 um, a square foot. And as I say, that is amongst the cheapest location, uh, cheapest prices in the world to buy prime residential property. So we have come from a pretty low base. I mean, if we're talking about other cities like London or New York, it is about four times more expensive. Um, and in fact, a million dollars um, in these three areas in Dubai buys you about 1,300 square feet of space. And you'd get about a quarter of that um, in London or New York. OK, so who's buying it? So that's the other fascinating change that we've seen. Um, unlike previous cycles where we've had a lot of speculative purchases in the market, this time around, we're actually seeing uh, buyers looking for second homes. Um, and these buyers are coming from new locations that we haven't necessarily seen before. So we've had buyers from Monaco, Switzerland, uh, from the Far East. We've got buyers from Hong Kong um, and Singapore as well. And, and these buyers are joining the usual diverse range of uh, nationalities that buy residential property in Dubai from the UK, India, the GCC, uh, Europe um, and, and North America. Uh, so for us, that is a very significant shift. And, and we know this because if we look at markets like the, uh, the Palm Jumeirah, we're seeing record pricing being achieved. Um, we've seen um, price growth of about 50% in the last 12 months for villas, for instance. And people who are purchasing these homes are spending almost the same amount again on some of the villa purchases to refurbish them because, of course, some of those properties are now coming of age. Uh, so what we're finding um, is that People are very keen to secure that beachfront lifestyle in Dubai, particularly the international ultra high net worths. And they are spending all that extra money to make sure it is a perfect second home for themselves. Well, let's look at your forecast next year, 13.5% growth. That's double that um, of the uh, the destination that comes in number two for price growth, uh, Miami. In fact, nearly triple it. Why the gap? Is that, again, the base we're coming from or is there more to it? It is the it is the gap where um, we're coming from. But I mean, we factored other things for us. Supply is very critical. Um, if we zoom right out, we've got about 81,000 units due to be delivered uh, by the end of 2025. Um, and on the face of it, it sounds like the market is pretty well supplied. Uh, but when we look at our prime residential neighborhoods, we've only got eight villas currently due to be completed by 2025. Um, and the, all of those are on um, Jumeirah Bay Island or Bulgari Island. And that is where the bulk of demand sits at the moment. Um, and unlike previous cycles, we haven't actually seen developers rushing uh, new villa developments to the market to capture uh, this uh, you know, insatiable international appetite to buy beachfront villas um, in Dubai. Um, so that is predominantly what is, um, what is underpinning it. 
And this was one of the questions we had this morning. If there are just eight of these ultra-luxury villas coming onto the market over the next three years, why aren't people just building more? It's a very good question, Brandy. Um, I mean, it's a tough one to answer. Um, If we look across... um, Dubai, we see a huge shortage of luxury waterfront homes. I mean, what we have seen in the past few weeks is um, projects like the Dera Islands being rebranded as Dubai Islands with the promise of having more luxury waterfront homes uh, being built there. But again, you know, before those villa communities are completed and before people can move in, we are still several years out. If we take the Palm Jumeirah as an example, if you had tried to sell homes there to international ultra high net worths about 15 or 20 years ago, it would have been a very tough sell because the project was largely a construction site for 10, 15, 20 years. However, now that it's completed, it is extremely attractive. And I think that that is our big challenge in Dubai is the lack of these completed uh, waterfront developments. So how long then can this level of growth continue? That is the uh, the billion dirham question, uh, Brandy. And uh, all, all I can say to that is um, we've, we've had a very short history um, for a freehold residential market in Dubai. And we've analyzed the previous two cycles. Uh, in the first cycle, we had prices rising for six years. In our second cycle, we had prices rising for just over four years. Uh, in our third cycle, the one we're in at the moment, we've had prices rising for about two and a half years. Uh, so, so make of that what you will. Before we let you go, we've got one minute left with you, Faisal. How immune is this prime market, this ultra-luxury market, from some of the issues that are bothering the rest of the market? Things like higher interest rates, higher inflation, a stronger dollar. I mean, do these people even need mortgages? Really good question. I mean, look, we factored all of those things um, into our forecasts. Um, clearly, there, you know, Dubai being a global city, there's always a risk of global economic contagion. Uh, the strength of the U.S. dollar is more of a recent factor, and we haven't yet seen it starting to impact uh, appetite from, as you say, the ultra wealthy. Rising interest rates um, is is also not having a massive impact on the surface. Um, we've, I mean, clearly, people who are mortgaged are going to see their outgoings increase. Um, we have looked at the proportion of cash buyers in the market, um, and at the moment it stands at about 80%. Um, and last year it was 40% um, of purchases were made um, using uh, using cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not that the banks are lending less. We've just got this overwhelming volume of cash buyers, and that's concentrated particularly at the high end of the market. So for now, um, they do appear to be immune from some of these issues impacting global cities. Faisal Durrani from Knight Frank, thank you very much for your time this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Talking the healthcare industry now, delighted to welcome into the studio an old friend of the Business Breakfast, Deputy Managing Director of Asta DM Healthcare, Alicia Mupin. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. Good morning, Richard. Nice to be here. Lots happening with you at the moment. Let's talk about a couple of things that you've launched recently. Mm-hmm. A new hospital in Sharjah. Fine. Right. We think of you as a hospital company. But then you've launched a wellness brand, which is not something I typically associate Asta with. Hospitals, clinics, pharmacies, yes. But why the move into wellness? To be honest, really, that was driven by COVID, right? So post-COVID, we started talking a lot more about uh, preventative 
and wellness and much more proactive care. And we realized that while people talk about in bits and pieces, there was no one unit that kind of encapsulated and combined it. Uh, and that's that was the whole concept behind wealth. So we were really excited about trying to do something where people talk about really building a discipline around wellness, because what you do now really affects your uh, health in five years, 10 years, 15 years time, right? So how do you make sure that you create a habit of wellness and well-being? And wealth is a really interesting concept because it's it's anchored on functional medicine, uh, which is a combination of Eastern and Western medicine. It's about creating balance. It's about cre- improving your function. And it takes kind of the uh, physiology and biochemistry uh, markers from the West, as well as kind of traditional therapies like Ayurveda, Chinese medicine from the East. So it's an integrated wellness concept that kind of combines the best of the world, the traditional as as well as the Western science uh, evidence-based medicine. What's the business model for something like that? I mean, if I look at your hospitals, yeah. I, I'd imagine that a lot of your revenue comes from insurance companies. That's right. But wellness is typically not covered by insurance companies. Yeah, so uh, so what we're trying to do, you're right, uh, for some people, some of these services are covered, like when you're talking about acupuncture, n- nutrition therapy, um, but a lot of the services, which is for anti-stress, anti-inflammation, we've got like infrared collagen beds, we've got uh, uh, aqua massage, we've got meditation pods, these things are not covered. So just like you go to the gym and you pay membership, and you might have a personal training package. What we're trying to do is a membership model within Wealth where people will go for five or 10 services in a month, which really kind of builds that habit of kind of taking care of yourself in the stressful kind of uh, fast-paced life that we live in Dubai. I know that you are at the moment focusing on establishing what you're calling a sustainable model for the business. You've got yeah. lots of hospitals here in the UAE, very active in India as well. I saw you were in Bangalore uh, quite recently on your LinkedIn profile. What does it mean to build a sustainable model? It's already a sustainable model. It's been a successful company for many, right. many Thank years you. now. How will that change? Yeah, so I think, again, post-COVID, one of the things we realize is people want things to be much more uh, convenient, uh, much more easier to access. So We've got, we see around 16 to 18 million patients in a year in our primary care model. And of course, the hospitals, like you said, but hospitals are the ones you go in for your surgeries and, um, you know, if you have to do advanced diagnostic like CT, MRI. So the whole idea of becoming sustainable in healthcare is how do you go digital? So with the pandemic, within almost 30 days, we had more than 200 doctors online doing more than 100,000 teleconsults. Now, post-COVID, things are slowly restoring back to people going back in uh, in person to the pharmacies and to the clinics. And we said there is no need for that. It's much better for a patient to be able to have access to much more consistent practice uh, and care management through online and through digital. So the idea for us going sustainable is to be online and become a digital healthcare company. So what Again, the economics of that, how do they stack up? Is it, is it more cost efficient to do that? Can, can you charge as much or less for a, a teleconference appointment than you would for an in-person appointment? How does that work? Yeah, so uh, to be honest, technology implementation, it's a high investment in terms of building the tech stack. But over time, I think you can utilize healthcare 
resources, especially the manpower, right? The, the biggest scarcity in healthcare is your doctors. Uh, so you can actually have them see a lot more patients online. So there will be a benefit as far as cost is concerned when you're going online. I think initially the investment is quite steep to try and connect all these pieces uh, and do the integration, whether it's with the health records, whether it's with the doctors, whether it's making sure the solution is scalable. But over time, I think, and with scale, it will be a much more cost-effective solution. What about overcoming the psychological barrier? If I'm sick, I want to go and see a doctor. If my <laughs> kids are sick, I don't yeah. want them having a Zoom call with a doctor. I yeah. want to take them to a surgery, as I would call it. Yeah, so uh, it lends itself great for certain specialities, but for certain other specialties, like you said, pediatrics, uh, I think it's still going to be a while. But for things like dermatology, uh, you know, endocrinology, where you've got lifestyle disease, like chronic disease management for diabetes or hypertension, you don't really need to go in. You will have to go in three, four times a year. And if the doctor sees you regularly and you're just having to sort of look at the blood work and kind of adjust your care management, it's much easier to do this online how much time do you save uh so yeah but you're right maybe with the kids you know you feel more comfortable we'll all feel more comfortable where the doctor kind of sees them uh dermatology you take a picture you show it that's as good as the doctor seeing it in person so we're seeing some departments and some specialities you're seeing a much bigger adoption into uh online teleconsults but some of them will still take time and you know tougher to shift across. Finally, you're a finance person. You're an accountant, aren't you? By My chartered accountant. Yes, yes exactly. Right. <laughs> IPOs all the rage at the moment. We had Talim mm-hmm. listing. You're listed in India. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts of listing here in the UAE? We're looking at some options. It's really interesting to see sort of the activity in the market. But right now, our uh, group company is publicly listed there, which includes the subsidiary of the GCC. What would be the pros and cons of listing here in the UAE as well when you look at them? I think in terms of the pros, uh, you know, 60, 65% of our business is here in UAE. Uh, So, and we've got a much wider network here than we have in anywhere else in the world. And I think that makes a big difference when it comes to retail investors, because the brand is known, there's a trust with the brand. We've been here for 37 years. Um, So I think that's the biggest pros. Um, In terms of cons, I mean, right now the market is doing really well and strongly. So we're we're quite optimistic about looking at some avenues, hopefully in the near future. And still room for growth here in the UAE, new hospital in Sharjah, population growing. What's your data telling you? Uh, So for us, what we're seeing is interesting shift in population, Richard. So you're seeing with the golden visas and the visa regulations right now, you see a lot more um, older population coming, retiring here, which is incredible because they're coming because of the confidence in the healthcare system as well, because that's one of the key decision-making factors when people move. So I think the way UAE managed uh, the healthcare in the pandemic has prompted a lot of people to feel much more comfortable moving to Dubai. Alicia Mupin is the Deputy Managing Director of Asta DM Healthcare. Always nice to talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Richard. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Today is Commemoration Day here in the UAE. Delighted to welcome into the Dubai Eye studio Colonel Staff Pilot Abdul Nasir Al Hamidi from the UAE Ministry of Defence. Colonel, thank you very much indeed for being with us. It's our pleasure to be here. So, for people who are relatively new to the UAE or have always wondered what this is about, can you give us a brief history of Commemoration Day, as it's called now, or Martyrs Day, as it was before? Yeah, uh, Commemoration Day, or Martyrs Day, uh, was established in 2015 
by the late uh, President Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nahyan in remembering or remembrance of the uh, veterans who lost their lives uh, defending the country in various fields, not uh, only limited to the armed forces, but also in other fields uh, like uh, humanitarian uh, missions and diplomatic missions across uh, the world. And it was launched seven years ago, if my memory serves me right. That's right. Today is going to mark the seventh uh, annual uh, for the uh, commemoration day here in the UAE. And as, as an Emirati, as a serving military officer, what does it mean to you? You know, uh, as uh, an officer in the armed forces, um, um, it's a sense of pride uh, to be part of the same organization that gave uh, lives and in defending uh, the country. And uh, we take them as an example to excel even further to protect uh, our beloved country, the UAE. And, and of course, national service is mandatory among Emiratis, is it not? So everybody has served in the military pretty much. That's right. It's, uh, it's part of our um, uh, duty for the country, even for the civilian, to uh, serve partially and to uh, be introduced to the military uh, tasks and responsibilities. So what's going to be happening today? You're based in Abu Dhabi, and thank you very much indeed for driving down to be with us today in the Dubai iStudio. What's going to be happening not just in Abu Dhabi, the capital, but across the country? It's a celebration across the whole country. Uh, many government uh, entities celebrated this occasion uh, annually. Uh, typically, uh, on this date, um, it's patronage by uh, His Highness the President, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, and his brother rulers uh, of the various Emirates. Also, the event uh, attended, or normally it gets attended by the highest government officials. And equally important, all the um, martyrs, families, relatives, children attend this celebration and a special recognition goes to those families during this occasion. And, and it's interesting you use the word celebration there. Of course, in many ways, it's a, a somber day, but then you're also celebrating the lives of these people as well. Definitely. Uh, we look positive into the future where uh, those uh, men and women give their lives to, to the country. So we look into the future and we consider it uh, equally as mourning those people and also a celebration. Can you tell us a little bit about the monument in Abu Dhabi opposite the, the Sheikh Zayed Grand Mosque that, that recognises the people who've fallen in service of the UAE? It's a, it's a stunning monument. We were in Abu Dhabi just a couple of weeks ago, driving past it on the way to work every morning. It's indeed, and I encourage everybody to visit this uh, monument. Uh, it was established after the decree established by His Highness, the late President Sheikh Khalifa, and it's called Wahat al-Karama, or the Oasis of Dignity. Uh, it enhances all the names of the martyrs that sacrificed their life for the country, and it's basically their names is engraved on a, a metal uh, sheet uh, which was recycled from military vehicles. It's a, it's and a, also in houses, verses of the Quran and um, a parade area uh, for people to visit and to basically honor those uh, sacrificed lives. And what will be happening down there today? Today at sunset, uh, there'll be a celebration. Um, as, as I mentioned, by the highest government officials and uh, we'll be starting with uh, a parade 
followed by uh, a speech and also recognition for the for the martyrs families and also it will be concluded with uh, a military fly past uh, fighter jets to salute the martyrs oh well we look forward to that one very much you saw the fly past didn't you at the formula one a couple of weeks ago tom or is it a week ago spectacular yeah and they have become one of the sort of standout displays uh, across the UAE at significant dates and events. Um, I know obviously the National Day, we will see uh, several flypaths obviously t- today as well for Commemoration Day in memory of those that have fallen. Um, last week at the Grand Prix was truly amazing because that's one of the ones that you see the um, uh, the fighter jets or the display team along with commercial jets. On that occasion it was the Etihad A380 as well. And when you see aviation and planes, Colonel, in, in all their glory like that, flying at very low level over a track like the Yas Marina circuit is truly astounding. And the noise as well. It is, you know, it's, it's a pride of the armed forces. We're very proud of this team. It represents the UAE and its flags in various occasions. And last week was one of them. Well, of course, it's a subject close to your heart. You are a, a staff pilot. You're still a pilot in the military, aren't you? I am. You, yeah, you I don't still fly. fly. Time to time. From, from time to time. Tell us a little bit about your, your career within the military and how you decided on a, on a military career. You know, uh, it started with a passion. Uh, flying is a passion personally, and uh, I was fortunate to join uh, the armed forces uh, years ago. And uh, I'm still proud to be uh, serving uh, my country in this field and also passing my experience to the younger ones. Well, it's great to see you. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Brandy Scott's got a question. Yeah, I do. Um, About national service, actually, Um, given that we have the business breakfast and we're talking about the amortisation quotas um, that are coming into force or the the deadline at the, the beginning of January. And you mentioned national service there. And we have Emirati friends um, who have done the national service, particularly during COVID, checking PCR tests and, and the rest of it. You were in the studio so early this morning that we were able to get to know you uh, a little bit. Um, and we were you know, talking about your shiny shoes and, and your promptness. And you made a joke about, well, that was because you were in the military. And I was wondering, what does national service give a person? that they can then take into their career, take into the private sector. What does that training do for you? It's another program that uh, it was established about nine years ago uh, by his later president, Sheikh Khalifa. And we're very proud of this uh, program where we uh, in, induct um, freshmen from high school into the military, 17, 18-year-old uh, youngsters, where we introduce them to basic military uh, drills and actually I think it, uh, it gives them a sense of responsibility, discipline that they could build on for their career and life. It's wonderful for you to join us today. Thank you very much indeed. That is the thoughts of Colonel Staff Pilot Abdul Nasser Al-Hamidi with the UAE Ministry of Defence talking to us on Commemoration Day. Shukran Jazeelan. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.